Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and me, Mike Nicoletti. For the uninitiated, Telltales are tiny bits of string that sailors use to read the wind on their sails. Each week, we discuss Telltales that help us invest, namely the energy markets, macroeconomics, and technology. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. The host may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned. My watch shows it's 3.31, so we can start. Um, We're going to uh, talk about oil and gas pricing and macro issues, but the oil price is basically not, there isn't a great deal of news there. It's been a little softer. Biden administration says they're going to do some releases out of the SDR. There isn't much news to report in oil. Natural gas, the near month has come down, and I suppose that's disappointing and probably has an impact on stocks that or companies that produce primarily natural gas, but the out years, 24, 25, 23, are behaving pretty darn well. So that market's good. We tend to think if you own a gas stock, you own EQT or NTERS, or, um, uh, you know, which are the two you probably want to own, or Chesapeake or Katerra. I think the the third quarter results are going to be very, very strong, even the people that had a lot of hedges on. So I wouldn't be disappointed by the near month coming from eight down to six something at the out years, which is really important, are holding in there 450, 460, 470. I think the gas market looks fine. The key thing on demand is that Freeport facility where they had an explosion is going to start to come up. And that's two Bs a day of demand. There's some concern that supply is up a B or B and a half as compared to what people expected. I think that's mostly Marcellus and Haynesville, and I'm not sure it's it's cause for alarm. I mean, the, the one place that could produce a lot of gas is the Marcellus, but the Marcellus is pipeline constricted, so it's, it's just not going to happen. And at least this administration is not going to authorize new pipelines. In fact, that Mountain Valley one, which has been built, which is a pet project for Senator Manchin, can get Senate legislation on that. So the Marcellus is kind of bottled up. Uh, Haynesville, I don't think, is as economic as Marcellus, and the Permian gas is just associate gas produced with the oil. So I think the gas supply situation looks okay. On macro, quantitative tightening, in other words, getting the Fed balance sheet, which before quantitative easing started to be used in 0809. Fed balance sheet was around two trillion and at 22-23 trillion GNP, two trillion should be large enough balance sheet for the central bank. It got up to four and a half because after 0809, the economy is very slow to come back and they kind of discovered this new tool, quantitative easing, which is having the Fed buy having the Fed buy treasury bonds and mortgage bonds, that kind of creates more money and supply, more money uh, out there. And they got it, they ran it up to four and a half trillion. Then the economy during the, you know, the 
Trump years was pretty strong. So they started bringing it down. They got it down to $4 trillion, And then COVID happened. And during COVID, the federal government overspent its revenues by $7 trillion. $5 trillion of that $7 trillion was the Fed buying mortgage and government bonds. But that $9 trillion is way too high in a $22, $23 trillion GNP, way too high. So now they have to take it down. So there's all this publicity about Fed funds rates. And it really doesn't, I'm not saying it doesn't matter. And the key is you get the Fed funds rate, which is the very short rate in our economy, 30-day rate, be a little bit more than the inflation rate. So they're saying that they're going to get to 4.5%. And that'll be neutral because uh, if they use the TIPS market, which is inflation-protected government bonds, it looks like in a year or so, 4% or 4.5% Fed funds rate will be more than the implied inflation rate out there. So that's all fine. And that's what gets all the publicity. The thing to watch, the thing to worry about, I think, and to watch is how do you get the Fed balance sheet back down? And they were adding to the Fed balance sheet as recently as February of this year, which is crazy. They should have started taking it down you know, in the spring of 21. But, you know, I think Jay Powell and the other Fed board members wanted to get reappointed. Now, the the Biden White House does some stupid things. And one of the stupid things they did was to delay appointing him. And so I think because he wanted to get reappointed, he waited and, or, you know, they all waited, the, the whole Fed board. And they, that, had something to do with creating this inflation issue. Now they have to take that down. They just have to, because that's what you need if there's a problem, is the Fed becomes active in buying securities. That's what holds our banking system together. They have to take it down. If they put it on runoff, which means you you just collect the interest and the repayments, it comes to around 90 billion a month, something like a trillion a year. Now. The first three months that they went into this, they limited to 30 billion a month. The September was the first one when they did 90. When you do this and you shrink the liquidity out of our system, the currency increases and you have lots of problems all over the world where people have borrowed in dollars, sovereign governments and corporations borrowed in dollars, but earn currencies. And you know the dollar gets more expensive as compared to their currency. So there will be problems. I mean, there was a problem in England with their market. What the Fed has to do is to kind of not be too concerned about these problems and continue to take the Fed balance sheet down. Whether or not they'll have the fortitude to do that, hard to say. Uh, What will be the impact on the value of everything? Houses, stocks, whatnot. When you're pulling money out of the economy, there's going to be a tendency for things to cost less. Now, we're about a week into earnings season. Fortunately, all the earnings results so far, at least through this morning, are all pretty good. So U.S. companies are negotiating this pretty well. Uh, It's not cause for alarm. You certainly don't want to sell things you own. But if you have extra cash, if you found something you want, I really encourage you to only buy half position or a third position. I think there's a better than even chance you'll get the rest later because of this impact of QT rather than uh, QE.
quantitative tithing versus quantitative easing. So that's one important macro point to make. I have about three minutes because I don't want to take more than half the 30 minutes to make the second important macro point. The Communist Party Congress has been held. This happens every five years. Uh, President Xi is going to get a third term, which up until this time, you are limited to two terms. He's clearly going to get a third term. There's something else going on here, which is combination of lockdowns of being active against the tech companies, the Alibabas and the Tencents and, and whatnot, preferring state-owned enterprises. That is a bit alarming. It could be, I mean, until his second term, the strategy in China was to keep the economy growing at five or six percent adjusted for inflation. In other words, five or six percent real growth on the theory that the way to keep everyone comfortable was to have more jobs and better job opportunities and whatnot. There may be now from, from the CCP, the Communist Party, some other priorities. What are the other priorities? The other priorities may be making economic standing more equal, having more control by the Communist Party of, of all activity, reuniting or making the relationship with Taiwan more like Hong Kong. When Nancy Pelosi stopped there, and which they really took exception to uh, as a ranking person in our government, you know, after the president, the vice president, speaker of the house is third in line, they, in the week or so afterwards, in effect, enforced an embargo on Taiwan. By that, they had enough shooting missiles over the island and uh, patrolling, having live fire drills by, by their ships and whatnot, so that airlines stopped flying in and flying out of Taiwan. So ships either left port partly loaded or decided to not go into ports. Now that becomes insurance. I mean, if you're if you have a ship and you have a cargo, you're not insured for going into a war zone. And so the owner of the ship or the owner of the cargo will simply say, stay at sea, don't go near. I haven't read this anywhere, and this may be something that we shouldn't worry about too much. But the talk we had from Dylan last week some of the activities that the U.S. government is doing, curtailing their access to, uh, to uh, high-end ships or to ASML and LAM and others providing equipment where they're actually pulling the people out. I mean, that's, that's a matter of record in, in the last week or week and a half. It may be the United States is, in effect, starting sanctions of China, expecting from that China will, in effect, embargo Taiwan. In other words, Ron try to land troops in Taiwan. They'll just put on an embargo and kind of force the Ty Taiwan government to agree to some relationship like Hong Kong has with mainland China. If that's the case, I don't think the U.S. military is likely to <clears throat> make the case that we can break the embargo, but we, you know, with our planes and ships and whatnot, they'll probably rely on sanctions, kind of like with, you know, sanction Russia for invading Ukraine. So this may be just an early, early stage of the sanctions that the U.S. government plans to put on. 
Now, why does this make a difference? It certainly makes a difference to the chip companies, chip equipment companies, certainly makes a difference to Apple, certainly makes a difference to Tesla. I mean, Tesla announced on September 30, how many cars it produced a heck of a lot more cars than expected in their Shanghai plant. So faced with that, what Jason, Mike and I are thinking is, we got one more day today and we're gonna talk about Qualcomm and migrate away from chips. Where are we gonna migrate to? I think the three of us think that what we want to do over the next several Wednesdays is do media broadly defined. Now, media includes Verizon, AT&T, Disney, Netflix, Comcast, you know, on and on and on. So that that's what we're going to concentrate on. We're not saying sell your NVIDIA or sell your AMD or whatnot. It's just in terms of committing, thinking about new investments, we'd like to migrate away from China since it's hard to predict what's going on there and focus on other areas. In most media companies, I mean, Netflix has subscribers in China and whatnot, but but China really doesn't matter in most media efforts. And with that, I'm just going to stop and see if Mike or Jason have anything to add before we get on into uh, Qualcomm. So over to you, Mike and Jason. It's been fun to spend a lot of time on chip companies. And honestly, we could probably go for the rest of the year on chip companies if we wanted to. So I, I agree. It's a good time to take a step away and we'll certainly circle back to some of these in the future. Jason? I think ASML might be interesting to talk about a little bit. They reported their earnings. They were very strong, even though they were subject to a lot of the sanctions you know, within China. We're kind of suspecting there's a pull forward in sales there, uh, especially DUV machines. They they don't anticipate a big impact from the sanctions, and DUV can be used, and it is being used by China to make some of the advanced chips. But largely, it, it makes the legacy node chips. Um, so it's just interesting that that they were a prime target of the Biden administration's sanctions, yet they're kind of doing fine. Well, that's great input. There was an article in the Financial Times this morning. Uh, Mike and I talked for about 20 minutes every morning at 8.30, 5.30 his time. Uh, there was an article in the Financial Times, which I recommend, about ARM. And ARM uh, sued Qualcomm in late August over Qualcomm acquired a company that had a license with, with ARM. And ARM's claiming that license terminated with the purchase this is pretty pretty aggressive for ARM because I think Qualcomm, or at least the article indicated that Qualcomm was their largest source of revenue. And with that, I mean, it's a good way to talk about Qualcomm. I think in talking briefly with Mike this morning, I'd like to get Jason's input. The thinking is here that, that you know, ARM doesn't have much of a uh, case here, but with that, turn it back over to Mike and Jason. Quickly to rehash what my take on it was, Qualcomm has some of the best lawyers in IP that exist. It is pretty well understood that ARM doesn't have that same level of talent. It's You can see it in their business model. You can see it how they've become captive by their largest customers. However, Qualcomm is a big customer of ARM's. So if ARM were to lose some of that, it would not be good for, for their business, especially leading up to a big IPO. The dispute is that around some contract law, and I'm not an expert in that, but my understanding is if you're up against Qualcomm, you better be well buttoned up because that's going to be a hard hard case to win. 
Right. Jason, uh, how injurious is this to ARM, do you think, in terms of SoftBank being able to realize on the 20 billion or whatever they think ARM is worth? I'm kind of worried longer term. So there's a there's a open source chip architecture called RISC-V that, if you will, it competes against uh, ARM, it competes against x86, even though you know there's no company backing it. And it's gaining popularity. So if the precedence is set that ARM's going to sue their largest customers in this manner, when it doesn't appear Qualcomm did anything wrong, I think the hyperscalers might start turning towards that. They won't have to pay ARM licenses. They have the free reign to design chips, uh, you know, however they'd like. I, I feel like it, it might be a, they might be shooting themselves in the foot long term by doing this. All right. I think the article said that Qualcomm, in terms of revenue to ARM, Qualcomm was number one because of all the mobile phones, but Apple was number two. So, and we'll remember just for the people on the phone and for myself, uh, there was a deal for NVIDIA to acquire ARM. It seemed like a good thing to do for NVIDIA, but I think one of the interveners in that, not only did uh, NVIDIA have to base antitrust action in the US, but also in the UK where Armis was founded in China and, and in the European Union, finally. Uh, and if you look at the financial statements, there's like this year, a, a billion dollars or billion two or something of write-off from cost of, of trying to do the ARM transaction. I guess that Apple in terms of chip design has a set of engineers that's as extensive and maybe as competent as NVIDIA or AMD or Intel or anyone else. So SoftBank with their $20, million, $20 billion valuation on ARM is, is really a, a bit exposed here. Totally agree. And maybe NVIDIA is better off not owning ARM. There's another read on this situation is that ARM's big customers sort of had them over the barrel for the last couple decades, last decade at least, and a new owner would bring new oversight and, and maybe push for some changes that would be not as advantageous to Qualcomm or Apple or some of the others that have these perpetual licenses with them. Right. And, th and that might be that might be the crux of, of this lawsuit as well, is, is Qualcomm has one of these perpetual licenses and Arm's not in a position to renegotiate it, and they would much prefer to to have the terms of the deal from the company that Qualcomm acquired, as far as at least for those AI chips that they're designing. But you know, as much as they can. Yeah. What do you, Jason? What do you think of Qualcomm as a as an investment as compared to Nvidia or AMD? We've looked at them. They're obviously hugely important to mobile and, and they're in these massive growing markets. I think there's a few risks out there that prevent me from getting comfortable with it. I know Mike was was digging into valuation uh, earlier this week. I don't know if we want to want to dive right into the risks or... Well, yeah, no, let's, I, let's I, yes, I the valuation, the valuation is good. I think mm -hmm. the, the, the lower valuation is probably probably a reflection of the risk. So why, why don't we go through your take of the risk, Jason? I think that'd be useful. Yeah, one, one of the risks is their largest customer is Apple. 
and they have a history of of fighting over specifically the the mobile modems. This is the chip that communicates between your your cell phone and the cellular tower. So Apple's historically bought that chip from Qualcomm. Uh, they saw, set out to develop their own. They actually bought, I believe it was Intel's modem business and kind of famously failed in developing a, a worthwhile modem chip. Apple was suing Qualcomm for some IP infringement and ended up probably, it was looking like they were going to lose that case. Um, so they settled when the first day of the trial and renegotiated, this was 2019, renegotiated a five-year agreement where Apple's going to buy Qualcomm chips. Everyone kind of assumed that was settled. And now it's looking like Apple's restarting or had not stopped that that modem development. They just signed a license agreement, a large license agreement with someone that owns IP around that technology. And for all appearances, they're they're going to be pushing hard to to take that, take that back. They, you know, Apple likes to insource all of their chips, all of their technology. Um, they've done it, taking away the business of, of Intel for the CPUs, and they'd much like to take away Qualcomm's business and, and bring it in-house as well. Right. While we're putting up with my, my uh, take on what might happen with Taiwan, you know, an embargo, some kind of an agreement by the Taiwanese government to extend communist China's control over Taiwan. The people that rely on Taiwan Semiconductor, Apple, uh, NVIDIA, AMD, won't necessarily be disadvantaged because you would expect Taiwan Semiconductor with China having more say, you know, like appointing a you know, like in Hong Kong, where the governor is elected, but no one can run for governor unless they're approved by the by communist China, may not necessarily make getting your chips made by Taiwan semiconductors such a bad thing. I think it's just the interim where <clears throat> there'd be some confusion. So my idea is to follow this closely while we vector off towards media stuff and delivery of media, streaming and the large cell phone companies, Verizon, AT&T, Mobile, but kind of keep an eye on the China situation because I can see a set of circumstances where just as the lower valuation of Qualcomm reflects the risk that Jason lays out with Apple uh, as their largest customer, the China risk might bring Apple, Tesla, NVIDIA, AMD, Qualcomm, all, all may come down. And if we're confident that <clears throat> the Chinese Communist Party wants to exert some kind of control over Taiwan, like Hong Kong, not as tight now as Hong Kong, but maybe Hong Kong 10 years ago, and that's a big priority, it doesn't necessarily mean someone, depending on Taiwan's TSMC, to make chips or TSMC as an investment out three, four, five years may not be that much changed. If that is a kind of a, a preamble or a possible way to look at it, just like to, before we bring off, see if Mike or Jason, who know this a whole lot more than I do, 
disagree with that way of way of looking at TSMC and and the customers that use it. I tend to agree that there's to use you guys are big sailors. There's rough waters here, but in the end, the world needs all these chips. They're going to be produced somewhere, whether it's Taiwan, in China, and in the U.S. or Europe is as separate. You know, they'll they'll get made. Agree. Yeah. Good. Well, we've got to pick one to look at first for next Wednesday. I think just because they announced earnings and uh, and came up with some subscriber growth and whatnot, I think I think we ought to do Netflix first. And maybe because we have a lot of companies, maybe we could try to do two first. Maybe on the first Wednesday, we ought to look at Netflix and Disney under the theory that Netflix is challenged to maintain a considerable lead they had in content. And if you're worried about maintaining a lead in content, the one you worry the most about is Disney. So uh, we promise to do mostly one week, one company, but I think next Wednesday, we ought to look at Netflix and Disney on the same 30-minute call. In the meantime, everyone stay healthy, stay well, and we'll be on next Wednesday. Take care. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.